Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Uh, so we all managed to drag ourselves into the studio today. Ben, you're, you're, you're here without the one thing that we generally require for a panelist on the podcast. My voice. <laughs> <laughs> this is real dedication. Ben shows up sipping his mug of tea. Yeah, it's... it's uh... It's a bad cough. With yeah. his last breath, he will record rational for you, security. Listeners. Are there going to be people on Twitter saying, like, for long last pen, what is this quiet? <laughs> yeah, there's, there are going to be people who are insisting that I'm doing it as a sympathy ploy to right. cover up my, right. to co- you know, to make people forget my, my Brett Kavanaugh <laughs> support. Ben is so distressed over Brett Kavanaugh. He can't speak. I will vouch for the fact that he well and truly is coughing. Yeah, it's not, it's not fake. Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the Nikki We Hardly Knew Ye edition. I'm Shane Harris, nominee for Ambassador to the United Nations. Shane, I'm so proud of I you. I would do such a good job, you guys. Could, could I you? think you would be good. I would be great, you Ambassador. I would, I would love those drapes. Can I just say, <laughs> like, um, I think since the president is considering his daughter and his son-in-law, mm-hmm. um, we should all, by the end of the show, come up with our nominee for UN ambassador. I nominate my dog. (laughs) My dog for UN ambassador. (laughs) Which one? (laughs) The louder one. (laughs) The one that barks all the time. I like it. I will I will think of an alternate for my own nomination, but in the meantime, we will all consider that. I'm here with uh, my friends Tamara Kaufman, what is Ben, what is and Susan Hennessy in the New Jungle Studio. Hi, guys. Hi. Hey. I'm never not calling it the New Jungle Studio. It's the, it's it's the new one forever. Yeah. I think on Lawfare, you're still calling it Jungle Studio. Well, so one of the things, we'll get to this in my object lesson, but one of the things about our new office space is that what used to be the Jungle Studio is now spread out between the podcast studio, the main conference area. And my office. So the jungle has gotten a little bit less dense. But mm. the plants are going to take over. I'm yeah. sure he'll fill it in it's in like, no time. It's like little shop of horrors over here, people. You have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> At least it hasn't just turned into a storage closet. <laughs> yeah. Yet. Yet. This week on the podcast, a prominent journalist and critic of the Saudi regime goes missing in Istanbul. Nikki Haley says she's resigning as the U.N. ambassador, and tech companies push back against a story about a massive hardware hack. Let's start with the news that uh, I've been busy following and reporting on for the past day or so. Um, Jamal Khashoggi, uh, who is a writer for the Global Opinion section of the Washington Post 
and a well-known critic of the regime in Saudi Arabia, uh, went missing just over a week ago um, after entering the consulate in Istanbul, Turkey. Uh, he had gone in to uh, obtain a document that he needed in order to get a marriage license. His fiance was waiting for him outside. Surveillance footage shows Khashoggi going into the building uh, but not coming out. And as uh, listeners have probably seen from the coverage, there is uh, – Multiple Turkish officials are now saying they believe he may have been killed inside the embassy and that the Saudi government is responsible. We reported last night that they sent a team of 15 people. This is a pretty incredible story in two different waves, some of whom were laying in wait for Khashoggi when he went into the consulate. And there's some real questions about whether or not the U.S. had advanced knowledge that they might have used to warn uh, Jamal about the danger that he might have been facing. We'll get into that. But Tomorrow, I want to start with you. Just if you can, just for listeners who may not understand fully, like Jamal Khashoggi's role and the position that he plays and why he has been so vexing to the regime in Saudi Arabia. Sure. So, Jamal Khashoggi was a journalist, I'm going to say for now, is a journalist who worked inside Saudi Arabia for many years. He trained a lot of uh, Arab journalists, folks that you and I know. He was the editor of Arab News. He was the editor of a couple of other Saudi-owned uh, Arabic newspapers. And he was a prominent commentator to Western audiences on Saudi affairs. In fact, he was quite close to the monarchy for a lot of years under the reign of Crown Prince and then King Abdullah. And he ultimately... I guess, fell afoul of the Saudi government after the Arab Spring when he was more supportive of openness uh, and particularly supportive of the idea of um, kind of uh, multiple interpretations, pluralist interpretations of Islam in politics at a time when the Saudi government was particularly concerned about groups like the Muslim Brotherhood and their involvement in Arab politics. So he lost his journalism jobs inside Saudi Arabia. He then was about to start a satellite television channel. Its first show was going to host an interview with a Bahraini dissident. And at the last minute, like the week before it was supposed to go on the air, the whole project got yanked. Um, so that, I think, was an illustration of the increasing intolerance for dissent and independent views that Jamal found himself subject to. And he finally decided to leave the kingdom a little over a year ago, and he came here to Washington. I saw him here shortly after he arrived, and he really was, I don't know how else to say it, distraught about having to leave a place where he'd spent his whole life. One of his kids and, and some grandkids were there. His wife was there, and he left her behind, and ultimately they ended up getting divorced. Um, and he started to build a new life here in the United States. Uh, he was So he was not a, an opposition figure. He wasn't a, dis, a dissident. Um, he was a journalist who wanted to speak his mind. There were certain things about Mohammed bin Salman's reforms that he welcomed, and there were other things that he criticized. But I think one of the things that's so shocking about this is that if the Saudi government indeed decided to take this kind of brazen action to silence someone who really in many ways was a moderate critic, uh, it shows just how little space there is for any independent viewpoint in Saudi Arabia. Yeah, and let's pick up on that. And, I, and it, you make that's an excellent point. In fact, I was talking to a friend of his today who was reiterating just what you said that he's not 
Um, he's not some kind of insurgent figure. He's not trying to overthrow the government. He's trying to speak his mind. And it even told people uh, in the government, when you you know have a policy that I think is good, of course, I'll praise the government. And when I think it's bad, I'll, I'll criticize it just like any opinion columnist would. But for Ben or for Susan, who everyone's thick, I mean, I think tomorrow's picking up on something really important, which is that if this is the kind of person that the Saudi government believes is such a threat that it's willing to go to these extraordinary, and I think we'd all agree, reckless lengths to try and silence him, uh, if in fact they are shown to have been responsible for this, what does that tell us about the stability and the decision-making within Saudi Arabia, and particularly when it comes to Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince, who I think is, for all effect and purposes, is, is in charge of the government? Well, it shows that he's a very secure person, <laughs> and uh, he's you know, not anxious at all about routine criticism of his ascendancy. Not. Right. Look, MBS is a thug and he's already shown himself to be capable of kind of dramatic acts of repression, locking up large numbers of people in his family, you know, uh, moving very the, the nice word that people like to use is decisively, but by which they generally mean brutally against uh, people who he perceives as a threat. And he definitely uh, perceives that threat broadly, probably because he's young and uh, in a kind of Kim Jong-un-like way, uh, you know, has a lot of older people in this regime who think, you know, who when you're a sort of young upstart leader like that, tend to look at you as the figurehead tool through which they can continue to propagate their power. And so there's an incentive when you're that age to, you know, do things like killing your uncle with an anti-aircraft gun, kind of to make the point, no, I'm not your tool, I'm your boss. And and I think we're seeing some of that with this guy. This incident, uh, I think, has a bit of the look of a screw up to me. Um, I, I, it's hard for me to imagine that they planned this to go this way, but who knows? And, you know, I think either MBS is going to calm down and mellow. Or we're in for a very rough period in Saudi where, uh, you know, what had been a quite brutal authoritarian regime that was fundamentally a stabilizing actor could become a fundamentally brutal destabilizing actor. I would say first in terms of regional policy, that's already happened. That transition has already occurred. Saudi policy since Mohammed bin Salman became defense minister has become aggressive and revisionist in the region. And that's symbolized by the Saudi Emirati intervention into Yemen. And that is a hole that Mohammed bin Salman started digging almost immediately upon his becoming defense minister. And uh, it's a hole that's getting deeper and deeper, and he keeps digging it, despite warnings and and advice from a lot of elder statesmen in the Gulf and from the United States, which is increasingly uncomfortable 
with this war, both on Capitol Hill and in the executive branch, frankly. But I think there's another dimension of this. You compared his thuggishness to Kim Jong-un kind of establishing his authority. In the Middle East, this behavior is much more reminiscent of Saddam Hussein. This is, you know, Saddam, who was a brutal dictator who uh, used chemical weapons against his own people when he, you know, saw them rising up against him, was just vicious in the way he assassinated political opponents abroad and at the same time was sort of reaching out to Western governments with a smiling face and saying, I'm your bulwark against Iran. I will push back the Iranians. And that's what Mohammed bin Salman has been doing. On the one hand, making this grand tour of European capitals and the United States, you know, saying, come invest in Saudi Arabia. We're modernizing. We're the way of the future. And we're going to push back against the Iranians. And on the other hand, cracking down at home. And, you know, I think the thing that's important about this, if it's a uh, an attempted rendition gone wrong, or if it's an outright assassination, uh, we know that the Saudi government has uh, kidnapped others, uh, Saudi citizens off the streets of foreign cities and brought them back to the kingdom in the last couple of years. BBC did an investigation about this a little while ago. So in that sense, there's nothing new here. What's new is that Jamal is missing and feared dead. I mean, I do think the the one thing we can sort of definitively conclude whether or not it's sort of an attempted rendition or, or an outright murder, um, you know, is that they felt uh, the Saudis felt like they could get away with this, right? That you don't do these things and, and take what even in sort of the, I guess, the best set of facts, um, you know, really is an, an astonishing sort of breach of, of international law if you think that there's going to be any consequences imposed on you. Um, and I do think that both the that they find themselves in that position and have been met by relative silence right it took it's taken a long period of time for anyone in the administration to speak out finally you had mike pence say something uh you know secretary of state pompeo has sort of come out uh, i think donald trump said uh, hopefully it'll work itself out you know and so as I, murders tend to right and and by the way this is happening in the same period of time in which uh, the chinese have now seized uh, and arrested the head of interpol including a long period of time Time in which nobody knew where he was several days, uh, you know, a journalist in Bulgaria who was, uh, you know, raped and murdered. Uh, meanwhile, she uh, was uh, undertaking investigative journalism and, and people suspect that uh, that she was uh, murdered for that work. Um, you know, and so I do think there's something to ask about, you know, whether or not the United States sort of abdicating its role and its responsibility has demonstrably emboldened these groups, you know, such that this that, that they feel like they can actually get away with this stuff. I also have to say that, you know, this is why having really clear understanding of Jared Kushner's financial and personal ties to, uh, you know, to the Saudis, to to anyone else who he might have financial interest in uh, with becomes incredibly important to basic national security decision making. And so that's why that's where sort of the the fudging and ignoring of, of these, you know, pesky ethics rules for nerds of filling out a bunch of paperwork and actually really, really important foreign policy, national security, uh, you know, decision making, they really do meet in a head here. So let's let's along those lines about the administration's coziness to Saudi Arabia that in the 
I think you're right, Susan, the, the, the permissiveness, the permissive culture in which the relationship has existed, whether it's kind of standing by as Mohammed bin Salman wages this disastrous war in Yemen, facilitating this confrontation with Qatar, which I think a lot of people view as unnecessary and counterproductive. Um, we reported last night in, in the Post, uh, this is my contribution to our coverage, which was that US, the U.S. government had intelligence intercepts of Saudi officials talking about trying to capture Jamal Khashoggi and specifically a plan to lure him back in recent months to Saudi Arabia where he would be captured. And it, it was starting to look like perhaps uh, that may have failed and then a, a kind of a plan B was put into action. Um, so – there's the possibility, A, that Mohammed bin Salman thought we can get away with anything, right? And it's appearing that the U.S. government at least had some insight into his hostility towards uh, Khashoggi and the lengths they were willing to go to. This does raise the question of putting aside for a second the relationship. What is the, the fundamental obligation of the U.S. government to warn someone, uh, whether a U.S. citizen or not, when they have a credible reason to believe there may be a threat to him? Yeah, so there is articulated intelligence community policies on this. So sort of the high-level one is called ICD-191. It's actually called the duty to warn. And it basically sets out at a high level the, the conditions in which there is an obligation to warn someone. I think it's of, um, of intentional killing, kidnapping, or serious bodily harm. Uh, uh, and that it um, directs all agencies that might be in possession of intelligence to promulgate their own specific regulations about how this is going to play out. I, I mean, the difficult thing here is that it's um, it, it all rests on this notion that you have credible, specific intelligence. And so this is something we hear a lot whenever we hear, um, you know, counterterrorism officials talk about we, we don't see a credible, specific threat. You know, this is this is a term of art. And so even from the current reporting, it's difficult to understand, you know, the United States might have had some indication that there was some kind of issue, some sort of threat. But at what point it crosses the threshold of credibility, right? So you're you're getting it from sourcing that you believe, uh, you know, is is accurate and reliable. And then at what point do you hit that specificity? And, and really, the the sort of the the mark of specificity is the ability to act. So giving people sort of generalized warnings in situations in which they have no capacity to actually do something to protect themselves, there, there's not sufficient specificity. Um, you know, so it, we also don't know who uh, who's particular directives would apply here. So um, it might have been the Department of State. Now, it, there's not a rule for U.S. citizens versus non-U.S. citizens. There are very elaborate rules for whether or not the threat is materializing outside the United States or inside the United States. If it's inside the United States, there's an obligation to coordinate through the FBI, and then the FBI sort of takes on the investigation from there. Whenever it's outward-facing non-U.S. citizens abroad, the duty to warn exists, um, but it is it, it tends to be a direct sort of agency notification to an individual. Oh, go ahead, Jamie. Yeah. So I, I guess my question about that would be if, as the, as you guys were reporting in the post, Shane, that this was an intercept, right? So in that sense, it's credible because it's SIGINT, right? Um, but is it specific enough? You know, it it's certainly specific enough for the U.S. government to have said to Jamal, hey, you probably don't want to go back to Saudi Arabia, right? And And I guess one question about duty to warn is, are there ways to warn without declassifying or disclosing classified information? You know, how, what's the process by which duty to warn happens? So Shane and I have both received warnings from the U.S. intelligence community based on 
intelligence that was specific enough to trigger whatever the FBI's guidance was, not specific enough to, at least in my case, they did not give me any indication of what their underlying intelligence looked like, but they did give me a heads up that if there were steps that I could take to batten down certain certain accounts, I should take those. And, you know, you don't have to share the underlying intelligence, let alone the sources and methods associated with that intelligence, in order to say, hey, you might not want to leave your window open at night, you know? Yeah, so look, there's a, we're, we're a little bit apples and oranges. There's a completely different set of sort of warning requirements and obligations in the context of things like cyber threats and ICD-191 applies. And that's what we're talking about. Right. right. ICD-191 applies yeah. very, very specifically to forms of serious bodily harm. Like kidnapping so, is literally Right, sort of kidnapping yeah. is the lower threshold. I mean, even they even say serious bodily harm. So, you know, if they're so just going to say you then that's not <laughs> So, so I didn't mean to suggest that this was a 191 issue. My point was when they warned me, granted it's a different set of warning requirements, it's a different set of authorities, there was no indication of what the intel was. I was just answering t- Tamara's question about whether there were ways to do those warnings without giving away – so I, I um I, that point taken, but I actually do think that it goes to whether or not um sort of the equities in providing the intelligence. So if the threat in if a cyber threat materializes, it's not to say that there's not a harm. Um, but you know if somebody's account ends up being hacked, um, there's a, there's a level of acceptable failure rate there, right? So you can say, well, we're not going to give you lots and lots of specific information because you know we want to tell you to duck, but like frankly, it's it's not the end of the world. Whereas once you've decided that they're really is a credible specific threat to a human life. And by the way, you might not know if there's collateral damage to their family or others. There suddenly becomes an obligation to provide all information that could possibly be relevant to their protection. There's also an obligation to give them information so they can assess for themselves what are appropriate courses to take. And so I do think that sort of once you pass the threshold there, it does become more complex to give some information, but but certainly not all information. And sort of on the SIGINT point, I think this is where, where questions about, well, is it credible and specific come into play? You know, the idea that it's SIGINT, you are 100% sure that somebody said it. And so who's saying it then means it's really going to happen, right? So you might hear somebody talk about it, but does that person actually have the juice to, uh, you know, to execute on this plan? Are they actually speaking for sort of the sufficiently high uh, echelons of government that would be required to sort of to, to order something like this? That's where it starts to become sort of a you know, a very fine game of, you know, do we have enough here? And and I think that's it's so important. And, um, and that analysis is so important, because uh, in these situations, you tend to have to give lots and lots of, of, you know, sources and methods information. And so it really is a very, very significant decision to decide that the threshold is met in the first place. Well, speaking of duty to warn, I think that you and ambassadors have a duty to warn reporters when they're about to drop that they're resigning. Are you sad that Nikki didn't give you a heads up, Dan? It did want, happen very quickly. I, was I just actually... want to point out that that's like a totally subpar segue for you. Oh, come on. Well, we couldn't do a joke. Man, you know, it's... I'm trying to just be mild here in my yeah. approach. 
I was actually sitting in a meeting with colleagues when the news came across, and one of my colleagues said, oh, shit, Nikki Haley just resigned and jumped up from his chair so fast that it flew into the other person's chair. So we were rather surprised. Um, That's but- hilarious. I was in a meeting also when the news broke, and there were, you know, we were in a hollow square, and all of a sudden you could see everybody looking at their phone and passing it to the person yeah. next to them. So I was like, <laughs> right. okay, what happened now? Well, this Look, is- but Trump and Nikki Haley have both reassured us – there's nothing to see here. Nothing it's at totally all. Normal. Nothing at not all. Not an issue. Uh, in fact, the, the, the news came quite suddenly, and uh, not to say unexpectedly. I mean, all cabinet officials do resign eventually and go up to that farm upstate. Um, <laughs> Ouch! I think Nikki Haley's farm is in Iowa. Technically, <laughs> <laughs> you can buy a farm in Iowa. Well, not literally buy. You know what I mean? Just you know, the metaphors are just flying fast. Oh, Shane! But dangerous. it's very dangerous in here. Take cover. Um, it would. That is a measure of the surprise of how suddenly this came upon us, which uh, left a lot of people asking, why now? Why are you stepping down? And that's a bit of the the parlor game, and we should play that because that's fun. Um, (laughs) Let's speculate wildly. (laughs) (laughs) And there was this, like, the the spectacle, too, of the two of Trump and Haley in the Oval Office, which that is not generally how – Officials resign where you say, In the Trump you know, we just thought it was a great idea to come out here and say how happy we are with each other and just can do we, this. We wanted to silence any speculation. Just go ahead and tell you that it's fine. It's great. Everyone's really good. Can we also note that Trump's big compliment was that she brought an element of glamour, glamour. to the role? She was the secretary of the ambassador of glam. Um, uh, while we have been speaking, the oh New God, York Times has reported that a Chinese uh, intelligence officer has been arrested and brought to the United States for prosecution to face espionage charges, and it appears to be cyber-related. Okay. Um, so we are now— Is he going to take Nikki Haley's job? Uh, we, <laughs> we may nominate him if he's acquitted to, <laughs> to be our UN ambassador. Um, that was one of your better segues. Uh... <laughs> See, what goes around comes around. Oh! All right. As, as Brett Kavanaugh would say. <laughs> oh my God, I'm getting this. This is we are so off track. <laughs> this is just. The, Meanwhile, the, the bolts back are of, off. Back on Nikki Haley. Oh my God. Back to Nikki Haley. Yeah, anyway, let's skip to the third topic. Um, no, uh, but, but tomorrow, give us a sense of like. Hey, I mean, I'm curious as you think why she's doing this now. But okay, so this now creates a a, a big question mark over the future of, of the administration's foreign policy agenda. Nikki Haley was regarded, I think, as one of the so-called axis of adults. Uh, their numbers seemed to be dwindling. There was a lot of question about whether she had been ineffective or becoming to be neutralized in her role because John Bolton and Mike Pompeo were sort of grabbing the reins and taking a lot of initiative away from her. But you know, sort of give us your quick take on why you think she did this now, but then the more important question of like, okay, so where does this then set uh, the ship of state. I am not sure I have any reasonable speculation about the timing of her departure, except insofar as she has further political ambitions, which I think we all assume she does. Well, she said she'd be campaigning for Trump in 2020. That's quite possible. She didn't say for what office. Right. <laughs> for dog catcher. But, she, you know, if she wants to run for something on her own in 2020, whatever it might be, uh, she probably wants to get started shortly after the midterms. But 
I actually think the interesting question is what this says about uh, unity or divisions within the Trump administration on foreign policy in general and on the UN in specific. Because one thing Haley had done quite successfully is from her perch in New York, managed to stay above some of the really sharp divisions within the Trump administration on certain issues and triangulate a bit. And so she was really well known for, you know, outing Iran on its ballistic missile development. Um, she was well known for fighting on behalf of Israel at the UN. Uh, and she was well known for UN reform. And after John Bolton became national security advisor, there was a lot of kind of buzz buzz about whether she and Bolton would be at odds over that last one, because Bolton is just relentlessly hostile to the United Nations. Um, and one thing Nikki Haley had managed to do was sort of sell Trump on the idea that working with Secretary General Guterres on a reform program at the UN was a good way for Trump to have an impact, staying engaged, promoting reform, whereas Bolton just wants to burn it all down. And so, you know, Nikki Haley was able to keep Trump engaged at the UN for two years. And the question in my mind is, what's going to happen now? Will any successor be able to keep that going? Or is Bolton going to get his way and the United States is just going to start willy-nilly pulling out of UN institutions? So I think one of the interesting questions about Nikki Haley is not what she's going to do now that she's left, but why, right? I mean, there was always the why she went in question and – a lot of people have asked the sort of how does she navigate uh, – how did she manage to navigate this relatively successfully compared to other people who have kind of disgraced themselves in serial fashions? But I think the why why is she leaving now question as opposed to three months ago or three months from now is an interesting one, right? It's right before the midterms and it's right – it's a period after a period of chaos, and it is a period in which everybody seems to have had their eye on other things, you know, like, for example, the Kavanaugh nomination and, you know, some other stuff. And it's a kind of an interesting time for her to sort of slip quietly to the door without a lot of drama, promising, of course, not to run so you kind of diminish any possible drama associated with it. And it raises the question if, I mean, if anybody has a, an obvious next act uh, coming out of this administration, it's probably her. But what does that next act look like? And who is the dragon that she would have to slay to do it? And so I think it's an interesting question. And she's certainly one of the few people who whose stature has been elevated by the exercise of the Trump administration. And that's a, a unique accomplishment. I think it's interesting to compare her in that regard to Rex Tillerson or to, I mean, just take the White House staff, Reince Priebus or Steve Bannon, right? You know, it's interesting to compare her. Uh, I suppose the, the most obvious comparison would be Mike Pompeo, who has certainly uh, angered a lot of people, but he's definitely a larger figure today than he was three years ago. And they get along so well. Yeah, exactly. Besties. But it's, it's, a, it's an interesting, like among people who, you know, 
like people like us spend a lot of time thinking about the way that people have diminished themselves by serving in the Trump administration. And Nikki Haley has arguably elevated herself, and it's not principally because she's added an element of glamour, right? It's actually she's, you know, she has made a contribution in a in a weird kind of way, and and she has in fact been a stabilizing force. And I, you know, I think she can probably walk away with a sense of accomplishment, which not a lot of people can do. So I think there's one possibility that we should acknowledge, which is that she's leaving to preempt a scandal. So um, Crew has filed paperwork related to an investigation of her use of uh, of flying um, government airplanes down to to campaign events. You know, she's a careful person, so it would be uncharacteristic. But you know, I, I think we should. There is some possibility that this actually is about getting ahead of something. Something like that. Um, Turns you know, out the drapes were not her fault. Exactly, though. the drapes—you know—a a totally uh, uh, unfair scandal. I've um, also said those drapes sound like a bargain. Well, I think they should give her the drapes as a farewell gift. Give exactly. her drapes. What if she doesn't like them? Uh, I, I do think one possibility that other possibility that it could explain the timing is. That she's not necessarily planning to run against Donald Trump for president, but she still thinks that maybe she's running for president. And that is that the midterms, assuming that the House at a minimum flips um, and maybe both houses of Congress, is going to become a substantial inflection point. Because once the Democrats have the gavel, we are going to see an investigative pace and a pace that is unearthing scandals at a rate in which she has determined it's better to get out now rather than wait until there's a tipping point. There's lots of people running for the exits. She risks sort of getting tarred for for staying on too long. And so in that calculus, I could see sort of somebody saying, well, I'm not planning on on posing a primary challenge, but I don't know. I think there's a 30 percent chance that he implodes to such an extent that uh, that he's not running for re-election and, uh, and is interested in sort of becoming the uh, Republican alternative to that. You know, one sort of bizarre uh, last move for her, assuming that we are attributing this to um, you know, a long-term strategic plan, is her decision to write this op-ed in response to the anonymous op-ed. Right. So uh, uh, many people speculated that maybe even Nikki Haley was the author of, of that New York Times anonymous op-ed, the lodestar. Um, you know, but in, in response, I think it was in the Wall Street Journal or the Washington Post that um, that she published an op-ed that really, uh, you know, uh, tied herself to the Trump administration's policies in in a lot of ways. And she said, you know, sometimes we have disagreements and but, you know, we we talk them out and this is the way to do it. But it wasn't just a process argument. It was a sort of an embrace of what the president has done and, and his agenda. Well, she for the called Jared Kushner the years. hidden genius of the administration. Just, for me, that, that seems like very a, hidden. A bizarre <laughs> can I can I suggest, though, that the language in that op-ed about if I have disagreements, I talk to him face to face and could easily be read as I'll stab him from the front, not from the back. And, you know, as you said, it may be that she's running for president, just not against Donald Trump. And, other, you know, she'll be sort of part of the crowd uh, et tu brute, right? I, I, I took her. Yeah, I mean, look. I mean, maybe this administration has just made me far too cynical, but I think her claims that she was not running for president in 2020 and plans to campaign for him 
are are they're worthless. I mean, they're meaningless. I mean, they, they, a lot can happen. A lot can happen. He and, and frankly, even if he did was elected to another term and served until twenty twenty four, that is only six years away. It, it's not a long time. That and is, she is young. She, she is and glamorous. Absolutely. I mean, <laughs> look, it's, it's she's it's, brought all the glamour she could bring. Look, There's no more work it's to six do. Six years. It's a term in the Senate. Not to say she's running for Senate, but like it's it's a measurable period in American right. politics that does not put you out of the range of running for president when your current boss has served his second term and, and gone off to retirement. But she's also, I mean, she has eyes like everyone else and can see that there are decent odds that this presidency could end prematurely. He might not be reelected. I mean... Or that a Senate seat could open up in South Carolina. a Senate seat can open up. Mm -hmm. I did notice that Mark Stanford Stanford, um, ran to the cable news outlets to say he smelled something fishy with this. He thought there was something up here. And um, of course, there's a little love lost between the pair. But um, uh, clearly, he is uh, suspect she might have Senate ambitions. Well, speaking of something fishy... That's good. That's good. This is a good segue. All right. That's a good segue. Right. Got my mocho back, y'all. <laughs> Works on a lot of levels. Um, I've seen what we call in the journalism trade pushback to stories that people have written, particularly ones that rely heavily on anonymous sources. I don't think I've seen quite the ferocity and high level of pushback at least on a major cybersecurity story in quite some time, as the cover story of Bloomberg Business Week this week, uh, their story, The Big Hack. This story is a little bit different from the stories we're used to reading about vulnerabilities in software and how those hackers exploit those to get access to data or to disable a system. And this is actually purports to be a story anyway about a particular exploit or, or attack, even if you will, on the hardware of a computer system, on the on the physical things that you can hold. Um, Susan, tell us a bit about what Bloomberg said, and then let's kind of move quickly to the reaction to this because it has been fierce from tech companies, from governments, essentially saying um, this story is either wrong or has got some serious misunderstanding in it. Yeah, so there certainly has been very substantial pushback here. Essentially, what the Bloomberg story is reporting is um, that Amazon, in the course of uh, acquiring a company which was called Elemental, was doing its due diligence and and researching uh, this company Elemental, and in the process of doing this third-party review, uh, essentially discovered a hardware backdoor uh, in these supermicro uh, uh, servers. Now, that's incredibly significant because these are uh, elemental and these supermicro uh, computers are used by the DOD, by CIA, um, and because a hardware-based attack, unlike a software-based attack, is incredibly difficult to root out. It's in sort of the physical infrastructure itself. Um, And so this was a story that sort of the minute it landed blew up because I think it touched on a lot of longstanding fears and concerns. The first is that this was an attack that was plausible as a technical matter, right? It sort of, it checked those boxes. It also fulfilled sort of a longstanding nightmare, which is that there is this upstream supply chain compromise. It gets sort of baked into the infrastructure of all kinds of, you know, important U.S. critical 
infrastructure, national security infrastructure, and then you have a, a mess on your hands that you really can't remediate. So concerns about these kind of, of uh, hardware-based attacks are so significant that actually there was a lot of pushback um, uh, based on information that Edward Snowden disclosed that indicated that NSA might be involved in uh, in different but uh, but similar efforts. You know, there was a lot of pushback by the community of nobody should be doing this because it would be such a such an unbelievable mess. Um, so it's sort of the story that um, that that takes off and and lots of people in the infosec community kind of seize on as you know this is this is it. This is the worst case scenario. Um, it's a highly detailed story. It relies all on anonymous sourcing, but it says 17 anonymous sources. Uh, it references people within the U.S. intelligence community. So for about 10 hours, um, there were a lot of people with their hair on fire thinking this is potentially a catastrophic breach. Um, then something strange happened, which is uh, the two companies that are most directly implicated here, Apple and Amazon, both issued unequivocal denials. This didn't happen. It wasn't true. The reporting was wrong. There had never been a discovery like this. And this wasn't language that used sort of wiggle room, you know, to allow themselves, well, we didn't know it at the time. Or you mean it wasn't Rod Rosenstein about wearing a wire or the 25th Amendment? This, indeed. You know, this was so unequivocal and the lawyers for the it was so unequivocal that the lawyers for these companies would not have allowed the language to go out unless it was true because they're both publicly traded companies and you'd potentially have an SEC issue on your hands if you let this kind of false information this this false statements come out so then you had sort of a conundrum right you had this bloomberg story with you know lots of details and apparently lots of sources up against these sort of you know these companies really putting it all on the line bloomberg doubled down on their story and said, absolutely, we're positive. Then in the intervening week, uh, you have DHS making a statement pretty unequivocally saying it didn't happen. You have uh, Rob Joyce, uh, formerly the White House senior cyber advisor who is now returned to NSA, who said very candidly, um, if anybody knows anything about this, I'd sure love to hear it because we are completely befuddled by what they're talking about. Um, the former general counsel of the of Apple uh, has gone on record saying that this was something they looked into uh, a year ago whenever they first heard rumors about it, that they had contacted the FBI, that the FBI had said, nobody here knows anything about this. Uh, you had the we have you have UK intelligence sources now going on the record saying we have no reason to question the veracity of Apple and Amazon statements. So now you don't just have the statements of the companies. You have the entire sort of Five Eyes national security community and these companies really saying this story isn't true. Um, and that's caused people to start sort of picking at the edges, and it really has essentially crumbled. Um, so one of the only people who was a named source in the story has come out and said, one, that no fact checker ever, uh, ever contacted him, uh, and two, that his quotes were taken out of context, that he was Oof. describing a hypothetical attack. Three, he actually said something even more alarming, which is that over the course of a year, uh, he been communicating with these journalists, that he had explained to them a number of hypotheticals about how this type of attack could have occurred, um, just in, in purely hypothetical terms. And then he noticed something unusual. All the technical details that he offered as hypothetical possibilities 
Bloomberg reports are precisely what happened. So he's now gone on the record and said, well, maybe I'm incredibly prescient and predicted absolutely every piece of this, or maybe I'm the source. This has caused people to take a, a sort of a step back as this as this story really has been imploding and looking and to look at these journalist records in general. Um, and there have been two other significant stories um, in which they've pretty clearly gotten it wrong. So the first story, um, which I actually have a little bit of experience with, um, was whenever these very same reporters writing for Bloomberg reported several years ago um, that the National Security Agency was aware of the heartbleed vulnerability and had exploited it in advance. Um, that was something that NSA very, very strongly denied at the time, uh, denied in unequivocal terms. We're not making it up. And and I know that because I was in the room at NSA whenever uh, whenever this story broke. Uh, and that was a story that led to uh, the sort of the revitalization of the vulnerabilities equities process, really the misreporting, and, and it was just factually wrong, led to a two-year policy process response. Now, that might be a good thing or a bad thing in, in terms of the types of policy changes that actually occurred. But I think it is an example of the power that these kind of stories can hold in the public narrative. The second story authored by these same authors for Bloomberg um, reported that a Turkish pipeline explosion was the work of a Russian cyber attack, a very significant story um, that has since sort of been determined to be essentially a hoax. Um, this week, Rob Lee, who was a former senior official at NSA uh, for the period in question, said, you know, that story cited to U.S. intelligence sourcing. I was at NSA at the time. There is no way I didn't hear anything about this. I I don't think that the, that it's possible. I was in a position where I definitely would have heard about it were there knowledge by the U.S. intelligence community. Now he wasn't um, uh, willing to sort of cast aspersions on on the reporters, um, you know, and said he thought that they were operating in good faith. But this pretty clearly there there's very very significant issues here. Um, so this is I think uh, shaping up to be a, a pretty significant screw up by Bloomberg, or at least it's uh, it's appearing that way. It's wiped away millions and millions of dollars of Supermicro's market cap. Uh, so this is potentially really, really significant economically, uh, you know, for national security purposes, for sort of uh, deciding whether or not this is a real risk and threat that we need to respond to. And it's just not clear what happened. The other concern is that if even a very small piece of this story is true, that is still significant. So is it a hundred percent wrong is five percent right. Um, essentially, it is a big giant mess. It also points up to, and I mean, I had this sort of sinking feeling a little bit in reading it because, as a journalist, you have some level of you know sympathy when somebody writing about a highly complex technical subject gets details wrong, conflates things. The source that you mentioned who has gone on record saying, I have doubts about this story, even though they appear to, you know, they were talking to me for a year about it, has said he even sees conflations of ideas in here. And these are, we should say, I mean, two reporters who have, you know, their, you know, criticism aside, have been reporting on this subject for quite some time. And there's a possibility that even people who are steeped in this might not be fully understanding the details. There was also the story this week uh, in the New Yorker about the possible Alpha Bank Trump server link, which we've talked about before. And Frank Ford, who wrote a piece on it, 
two years ago, wrote a reflection on that piece. Uh, and, and this is another piece that sort of confronts us with what happens when reporters have to wade into deeply technical material, the understanding of which is not just nice to have and good for explaining the story, but is absolutely 100% essential to either conveying an accurate story or conveying bullshit. But what bar do you set for yourself? So you've reported on on similarly highly yeah. technical materials. How do you know that you've reached a point where you're sure you understand what happened? What I tend to do is go to the people who are experts and say, this is what I understand happened. Is this correct? And and, and make sure that in when I'm using analogy, which you have to use in your writing to convey complex subjects to people, even the critic of the Bloomberg story acknowledged that. He said, you're not going to publish a technical journal here. You have to ask people, is this an accurate way to describe it? But even then, I mean, you're, you're, sometimes you're dealing with sources who have been briefed on a matter at a senior level, and you're not talking to the technical experts underneath them who briefed up the matter. And so there's a game of telephone that goes on. Right, so the you're, senior officials might get the tech wrong. Might get the tech wrong, exactly, or might, or might think, oh, I've got a smarter way to phrase this. I'll just say it this way. So to your point, Susan, another thing I like to do is I really like to get in the weeds with people. I mean, I, when I'll do interviews with technical experts, they'll say, well, I don't know how far in the weeds you want me to go. And I will always say, as deep as you want, if I don't understand something, I will tell you, but go there so that you're using your words and talking your language. And I understand precisely what you said. And then we can talk about translating it. So, but let's talk about the Alpha Bank story because- yeah. Uh, this is an example of just such a highly technical story, massive implications, and one reporter who didn't run with it in real time was Shane Harris. Uh, you had a lot of it, and we sat around at the time trying to figure out what does it mean, what can you and can't you responsibly say about it. So since your decision not to go with it, to boil down a very long story to a short story. Frank Four went with it in Slate, got a huge amount of criticism for it. It kicked around for a long time without going away. And this week, Dexter Filkins in The New Yorker writes a piece that is kind of credulous of the underlying theory in which – Eric Lichtblau and Frank Four, Eric Lichtblau, who wanted to write about it and kind of wasn't allowed to for the New York Times, and Frank Four, who did write about it and got a lot of criticism, are the heroes uh, in, a, in a sense. And we are still left at the end of Dexter's, Filkins's very long story, not really knowing if there was a secret line of communication between the Trump campaign and and uh, Alpha Bank, and if so, what the nature of that secret line of communication looked like. And so my question is, in retrospect, who's right? Is it is this a story that people should have gone with and risked the kind of criticism that the Bloomberg people are getting now, although it sounds like the uh, Bloomberg people got the story wrong. It's not merely that the story is that murky. Or was the right answer to sit it out? Um, I'm going to say the right answer was to sit it out, but the right answer was also to two years later to write about it. And, he, and here's why. At the time that we were pursuing that story, it was in the context of 
many leads of information about possible links between the Trump campaign and Russia coming across, which it's no secret were what we now know as the Steele dossier, any one of which would have been potentially devastating to the campaign. I mean, these are allegations that now we find ample evidence for all kinds of connections between Trump and Russia that have been reported out and been demonstrated to be, you know, accurate or suspicious or, you know, or I should say the connections could be suspicious, but the, the facts underlying them are accurate. Um, when Frank Foyer's story came out in Slate, I mean, one of the reasons I think that it was so such a bombshell is that it was alleging this incredible, extraordinary potential link at a time when people were looking for links between Trump and Russia. And it confused things. Um, it, it, it was both – I won't say it was discrediting of the whole question of whether or not there was a link between Trump and Russia, but it, this story didn't prove it. And then it also had all kinds of technical problems and I think, you know, and to some degree, I think actually the technical community was unfair to Frank and just leaped on him too ferociously. And they, it's, there's nothing that techies sometimes love more than ripping apart a journalist that they think doesn't understand, you know, their world and what they do. But at the time, it just, it just wasn't there. And the stakes were so high that if you were going to drop a story at the end of October, remember, this was days before the election. I remember it was Halloween night. Did it drop because I was literally standing in a Halloween costume? What in were my you wearing? House. I was fancy bear. <laughs> That's right. Miss Joe and I went to fancy, fancy bear and cozy, cozy bear. bear. Yeah, I and I was that. on the phone with my editor saying, "No, we're definitely not doing it. Right, we're definitely not doing it." Even though this story had just dropped, um, you'll remember too. It had dropped, I think, the exact same day or the day after that. The New York Times story said, uh, which mentioned Alpha Bank and said the FBI investigated and there's nothing to it, was the story that said FBI finds no links between Trump and Russia. Right. And from the New Yorker story, it appears that they were connected, right? That the, the, the yeah. story, that this, the, the Alpha Bank story evolved into, I think, what in retrospect is one of the biggest journalistic blunders yeah. of the entire 2016 election. Right. And so this, all to my point of just like, sometimes it's best to just leave it alone when you're not really sure what you have and continue reporting, or maybe just accept the fact that like, you know what, we don't know what the story is here. And we might actually be doing readers a disservice to drop this huge, you know, stone into the lake and not, you know, pay attention to the ripple effects of it. Now, though, I think it's, now to go back and look at it the way that Dexter Filkins did, which was to unpack, okay, what are all the sides saying? What was the lead up to this? Why were people so fixated on this? It was done, I think, in a, in a fairly responsible way and, and not sort of in the, in the moment of, you know, as we're ticking down the clock to the election. Now, that said, if Dexter Filkins written that story, which was sort of the inconclusive one closer to the election – I mean, which was a little maybe more measured than the original Franklin Four piece. I don't know. I, I, I think that, I just feel like right now there's enough distance that it was probably time for this. Although I have to say, when I when I, with no disrespect to Dexter Filkins, whose work I think is terrific, my first reaction when I saw the story was, "Oh God, this again!" And I got to the end, and I'm like, "There's nothing here." And I mean, and I believe me. I mean, I struggled for weeks trying to find the answer to this. And at the end of the day, the data that's available that analysts are looking at will never conclusively tell you the answer to the question everyone is asking. That's just a fact. Is the cat inside the box? <laughs> I mean, moving back to the Bloomberg story, assuming there's a mistake, what is the obligation on the reporters now? Um, well... Or if they don't believe there's a mistake, That's but there's the, uh, these yeah. kinds of questions. You just, uh, you just put it do? the right way. It's like if you really don't believe there's a mistake and you stand by your story, you know, your obligation, I think, is to stand by your story. Now, that doesn't mean that sources will continue to stand by the journalists. 
And it may be that this is just the the one the last misstep they can make because you're right. You Do you have an out. obligation to show more of your work? I think so. In this case, yeah. I mean, I was persuaded by the name, I'm forgetting the guy's name who was quoted on the record, but he um he spoke on a podcast. Joe Fitzpatrick. Joe Fitzpatrick. Um, who said, look, I'm not saying you have to write a technical article here, but it made me think, you know, what if there should be a standard practice above these really long investigations by journalists to, in addition to running these sort of plain English lay version, explaining to people what happened, kind of an appendix that's like, here's the show your work part, here's for all the techies. So there can be some demonstration to technical experts of what it is that's underlying your conclusions. Uh, this would have been a case where I feel like that would have been warranted. I mean, the story is written with great verve. I mean, it's very vivid. They do a really masterful job of explaining complex topics to readers, but you're trusting that they're explaining them accurately because most readers are not technical experts. And even the technical experts read this story and kind of went, what? Okay, maybe. But yeah, I think at this point, there's a real obligation for them to show more of their work. And, 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 I, and I don't quite understand how they get past this skepticism unless they come out and, and do that and maybe to some degree even have to do a little bit of a, uh, uh, of a revision of this thing and say like, well, now we've gone back with this new information from news sources and it's making us rethink things. I don't know if they're going to do that, but it, it makes it hard for me to think that they'll their next story will be taken seriously if they don't take some steps to address what are, you know, really obvious, you know, pushbacks of the kind that you just don't see very often. I mean, these are the people who are at the highest levels of the of the of the subject of the story saying, this is wrong. I mean and this that is, usually does not happen. <laughs> this is why I only read Shane Harris's articles. Yeah. No other really, journalist, no other outlet. None. You can't trust exactly. any of the rest of the media. Only Shane Harris gets it right. Follow me. Uh, let's move on to object lessons. Ben had an object, but he had to step away. <laughs> his object was – he'll save his object. My, <laughs> I have my, an object. Okay. Um, so my object is – I just thought this really interesting um, statistic from a recent BuzzFeed article um, that noted that roughly 83% of young Americans who enlisted in 2015, enlisted in the military, had a family member who had served in the military. And more than a third had a parent who did so. Um, 83% of people who are in the who are enlisting in the military have family connections and, and a third with parents – I just thought it was a it was a really remarkable statistic that that kind of captured this notion that we do have this smaller and smaller group of people who are, you know, essentially these this warrior class of people and and these small families that are you know bearing the costs of these wars that uh, you know huge percentages of the United States and United States citizens are not even aware are continuing to be fought um, and I, I was aware that um, uh, that the numbers were remarkable but um, but I certainly certainly didn't realize they were that high and I uh, just thought it was uh, something to reflect on. Yeah, that's that's troubling for civil military relations. It's troubling in the sense that we have this cultural gap, you know, and it's troubling that given the gap that you cite, um, our popular culture still imbues the military with all of this symbolic significance. But it's like contentless. Because for most people, there's no direct connection. Yeah. Um, I don't have an object lesson. Uh, my object but lesson. But you should go see A Star is Born. There. Oh, okay. Well, I'm looking forward to your further movie review, Shane, because I have a lot of questions. I'm going to try to find a security movie for you. I have a lot of questions. About that movie? 
Yeah, about Lady Gaga. Oh. Let's just do a spinoff podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but before we go there, my object is the word so. Because as some of our listeners might have seen from Ben's Twitter feed, he got a letter from an admirer who just doesn't like the fact that we all start our sentences with so. And I'd like to note that even before Ben received this letter, I had noticed that we were all beginning our interjections on this podcast with the word so. And I've consciously been trying not to use the word so. But it's really hard. What's wrong with saying so? So. So I don't know. Like it's <laughs> it's just a good way to start. It's as, because it it's makes the new, it. So is the new like. It, it also makes it feel like it's the continuation of a sentence instead yeah. of the beginning of a sentence. So you feel less interrupty. Do you think people have always done this or is this a recent affectation? Because now that my attention has been called to it. I, 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 you know, I feel like I'm, I'm seeing it everywhere, but now I look for it in older I, movies, older TV I shows. I think I know what the source is. What is As it? for so many of our modern verbal tics, Seinfeld. Seinfeld? Go Did back and watch. Wow. So I will. <laughs> so all right. <laughs> that was appropriate. And so is it appropriate to end this podcast. <laughs> Get it over with. Wrap it up. <laughs> right. Done. It's over. We kind of went long today. <laughs> oh, Rational Security is a production of Lawfare. You can find our show page on the Lawfare website, somewhere hiding in there among the thicket of. Because we go deep in thoughts. the weeds. Deep we in the go weeds. Deep on this. Podcast. I made that joke about how no one ever wa- like listens to it online and got a ton of pushback. Oh yeah, Apparently, people, a lot of people, people listen to it on the listen website. Listen to it from the show page. Wherever I you want to listen. Apologize, we regret the error. Whatever is your jam, baby. Plug in. Get it. Dial it up on your modem. We're platform neutral. We sure are. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at RATL Security. You can find us on Facebook. Dial up modem. It's that so funny. <laughs> I don't know. Shane that was Harris. So dumb. Tech reporter. God, that was just, I was trying to be like, you know, making it like it was old school, but that just came across as a dad joke. That was a dad I'm joke. I'm not even a dad. Yeah. Ugh. You can find us on Facebook. All the kids are on Facebook. You can find us on Friendster. <laughs> We're huge in the Philippines. <laughs> Do you remember Friendster? Google Plus. Do you remember Google Plus is no more. Aren't they taking I know. it down? It's another hack it out we of didn't talk about it. God. All right. Well, you can't find us there, clearly. I was getting ready to put up the Google Plus page this week. <laughs> Yeah, right. No, <laughs> uh, whenever you download the podcast, please do not leave a bad review. <laughs> if this is your first time, please go back and listen to the archive. <laughs> it's been a really long week, you it's guys. Been, it's really <laughs> shitty. Oh, my God. Audio engineer this week was Michaela Fogel. The show is produced and edited by Jen Patia Howell. Music this week by Mohammed bin Salman and Jared Kushner's new pop duo, Daddy's Boy. <laughs> <laughs> Can't you see it? I can see the two of them in a boy band. I together. sure can too. Oh boy, yeah, like a millie. Wow. Okay. Uh, I, I, that's a boy band that I think even you know Sophia Yam would just be like, no, 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 no totally no. not. Definitely not that playing backup for that. Playing back after that. Um, well, if we think of any other good boy band combinations, and tweet us your recommendations for you and Ambassador. <laughs> Don't say Jared Kushner. Too easy. On behalf of my friends Tamara Kaufman-Wittis, Susan Hennessy, and Ben Wittis, who's off nursing his throat somewhere. Get well soon, Ben. I'm Shane Harris. We'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye. Here's a cool fact. 
A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com.